Heavenly Father, thank you again uh, for your word. Uh, we thank you for your church, and uh, I would like to thank you for this church and this place, and thank you for raising up a people that would uh, walk with you, that will worship you and call out to you, and who will also be witnesses to you, uh, not just here, but in the uh, places where they live and where they work. Uh, Lord, we thank you mostly, though, for your Saviour. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have sent him uh, to save a people to himself. And as we come uh, to look at some very practical uh, verses, we pray that you would, in fact, engage our hearts to worship him and to be so thankful for him. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as you had that uh, text read, um, Joel wouldn't let me start the verse off as I wanted to because I wanted to be a bit provocative. I wanted to start off with the, the next verse, which is, Wives, submit to your husbands. Once you say that, you get everyone's attention. And, um, and so I figured if you started with that verse, you'd certainly get everyone engaged. We, we know it's about marriage, don't we? We know it's about very practical responsibilities in marriage. Uh, but um, I, I think what I said in the kids' talk is what we've got to keep in mind. Uh, it's not that God is saying to you, here are marriages, and look at marriages and you'll understand something about Christ and the church. It's actually totally the other way around. He's saying, you, you've got to look at the heavenly marriage, the marriage that God has in mind, the marriage between his son and his people, uh, his bride. And if you get something of that, if you can grasp that, you'll get the gist of what you should be doing in your own human and earthly marriage. And so my goal this morning is not to look at uh, our everyday marriages and our duties in marriage. You'll come away thinking uh, the, me the message was a bit one-eyed. Uh, it was like half an exposition. We're going to look at Christ and we're going to look at Christ and his church. And the reason was uh, recently in our church, and when I rang Joel to pick texts, I told him, I said, oh, we've had a person coming into membership, and we've got a few more coming into membership. He said, oh, we had the same thing too. So uh, I said, did you preach on membership? He said, no. He said, well, why don't you do it? And so uh, that's what the text is uh, going to be used to look at, more about Christ and his church. Now, the, what can we learn? Well, the first lesson we get is, uh, we must reflect on Jesus' love uh, for the church. We must understand something about his relationship to his church. In Ephesians chapter 5, you would have noticed Paul's moving back and forward, isn't he? He's talking about husbands and wives, and he's talking about Jesus and the church. It's like he's going playing hopscotch between two topics, and he is, because he's saying, look at this, and if you understand this, then you'll know how to behave here. Now, I just want us to be a bit one-eyed for a little while. We just want to look at Jesus Christ for a little while in this passage and see how he relates to his church. The first thing we find is, the first observation is that he's the head of the church, isn't he? He's the ultimate leader, or we call it the boss, or the big boss. He's got that responsibility for the relationship, and he's got the responsibility for his relationship with his bride. Uh, he actually takes responsibility for that relationship success, for its health, for its quality. And he doesn't dump the responsibility onto the church. He doesn't blame 
the church. We like to dump responsibility, don't we? We like to blame others. Uh, but Jesus is nothing like that. He assumes responsibility and he takes on the responsibility for the health of the relationship. The, the second observation you should get out of that text about Jesus is, as the boss, he, he also brings with it this idea of being the saviour. And with his headship uh, comes or involves or includes this uh, expectation or this uh, work that he's done where he has actually saved his bride or saved the church. And the idea of saving can mean many things, can't it? It can mean this incredible interest in the welfare of the church. It can mean a willingness to protect from harm the church, to make sure the church is safe and eventually brought to glory, uh, to the great and final wedding day in heaven. Uh, but it also means, and probably mostly it means, in this, that a provider of all those essential needs for life. And not just life physical, but life eternal. So, so with godly headship God comes responsibility and something of a servant spirit. And you see that in Jesus. He's not a tyrant. He's incredibly interested in making sure that the church does well. He's interested in the church's life, her eternal life. And in this way, Jesus is the church's saviour. Look at verse 23. Verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. The picture is a Middle Eastern wedding, uh, far more exciting than our Aussie weddings. It's a, it's a wedding that goes over a long period of time. It starts off with the proposal and the acceptance, and then the groom goes off. And he's got to go and uh, start finding every possible resource. Uh, he's breaking piggy banks and all this sort of stuff to come up with a big dowry to come to the father-in-law-to-be and give the father-in-law a gift uh, so that he can have uh, a wife. In this context, Paul's telling us, Jesus paid the dowry with his own life. Um, this is how much Jesus loves the church. He loves her deeply. He loves her thoroughly. He loves her in detail. He loves her intelligently. He's not blind. It's not that he doesn't see her faults. Westcott says, Christ loved the church not because she was perfectly lovable. It's selfless love, isn't it? It's not a hint of selfish love. When we think of loving someone, uh, we think of how can I have that person to myself? Uh, or we think of what can that person do for me? Or how much I love that person because they're doing all these things for me. Martin Lloyd-Jones says with Jesus it's totally the opposite. He says rather than being governed by a desire to have, Jesus is governed by a desire to give. Uh, it's sacrificial love. He's not just being willing to give himself up for the church. He's not just saying, I'm willing to do this. He actually does give himself up. He gives himself by going to the cross for her. And he does so quite specifically for his bride. He, he didn't die for this mass of humanity. You know, some believe that he died hoping that some will believe. 
and some will come to him. He died for his church, a specific group who he would save and bring to this wedding day of all wedding days. It's Middle Eastern wedding pictures, isn't it? The groom's off there breaking the piggy bank and while he's doing that, the bride is preparing herself. She's uh, preparing herself to be beautiful for the day. It's the norm for the bride to have a special bath. It's a norm for the bride to buy a special dress. It was the norm to be totally prepared for the banquet. And as she readies herself for this big celebration, the father then comes and brings this perfectly prepared daughter of his and presents her uh, to the groom. Andrew Lincoln says, in this marriage, it's the groom that takes it upon himself to prepare and to present a wife in magnificent clothing and jewelry, displaying her regal beauty and her perfect splendor. Look at verses 25 and to verse 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having a spot, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Uh, the picture you've got to get is a church needs a lot of work to be done on her. There's a stack of work that still needs to be done. And Jesus, the bridegroom, takes upon his own shoulders the responsibility to do the work. It's his job to make this unlovable church lovable. He separates her from the people of this world. He brings her together and cleanses her by his word. And he does it in detail. He does it with care. He does it with specific and very loving gestures all through the life of the church and with such care and detail that at the end of it there's no defect, there's no wrinkle, there's no spot, there's no blemish. I don't know if you know that band, The Police. They sang about a man who falls in love with an unfaithful woman. And she's this unfaithful woman, and so he, this bloke decides to stalk her. And he stalks her in quite a sinister way, really. Let me read the words. Every breath you take, every move you make, every bond you break, every step you take, I'll be watching you. I mean, this became a hit song. It's probably your favorite song this morning, isn't it? Every single day, every word you say, Every game you play, every night you stay, I'll be watching you. You see, J Jesus stalks the church in a sense, but not in a sinister way. He's constantly surveilling your life and mine. He's constantly watching over you to make sure he can bring every benefit and every beauty in every detail to us as church. The church, the church owes all her beauty to her bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Look at verses 28 and 30. That there's an essential unity, we're told, by Paul. 
between Jesus and his church. He says, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body. There's a unity between the church and Christ. It's a mystery, isn't it? Jesus is in heaven, but, but he's one. And he's completely one with all of us on earth. He's completely one with all those who've died in the church and gone to be with him in heaven. And he's completely one with the elect who are yet to be born. It's a mystery. We, we can't understand it. But, but it's true. He's the head and we are members or parts of his body. And so he cares for us accordingly. The unity that we have with Jesus results in tender and compassionate and comprehensive care. And I've got to ask you the question, do you understand this about your Saviour Jesus? Have you come to grasp something about how much Jesus loves the church? Has it gripped you that Jesus loves you? But the next lesson we learn is that, that we as his people should submit to Jesus and commit ourselves to his body. The, the idea of God and his people uh, being likened to a marriage or a husband and a wife is not just a New Testament thing. It's an Old Testament thing as well. Uh, the imagery pops up every now and then. Uh, one example is in Isaiah. Let me uh, read to you from Isaiah 54, uh, verses uh, 5 to 7. Um, and Isaiah is uh, speaking to uh, Israel. He says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. You get the picture, don't you? There's this faithful husband, there's this unfaithful wife. And there's these tender mercies by which the faithful husband draws and gathers to himself this wife. It's a picture of God in Israel. And it's no different to the picture that Paul paints in Ephesians. The picture Paul's painting is this, Jesus has come in mercy. And he's come and he's found this unfaithful wife, the church. And he comes to his bride in all her filth and he cleans up her act. That's the bottom line. We, we confuse ourselves so often, don't we? We think we cleaned up our act first. And once we cleaned up our act, that's when we were admitted into his church. And we sometimes think of that in terms of this church or Smithfield. We think, well, once I'm slightly better, once I've improved my life a little bit more, that's when I'm right to turn to Christ. And that's when I can go into church. And that's when I can join a church. The, the picture is totally different. The bride is unworthy. There's a deficiency in the bride. The bride is filthy. She's a turn-off. But Jesus accepts her anyway. 
and he accepts her anyway and then he proceeds to make her acceptable. Paul says that the church gets this, the church understands this, the people of God know. They know just how much Jesus has done for them. They, they, they've grasped the fact that he has actually taken them in a totally unworthy state and started a work in them. And so logically, willingly and lovingly, they'll submit to him. They'll obey him. They will love him. They will worship him. They will follow him. And that's how Paul argues uh, the whole role of women in a marriage. His argument to the wives is, because your husband's the protector, because he's a provider, because he's a benevolent leader, because he's your self-sacrificing lover, you must submit to him. And you must submit to him because it's so obvious the church, the church have understood what the leader's like. And so they submit to him. Look, look at verses 23 to 24. He's arguing from the heavenly marriage to the earthly. It's not the other way around. It's the heavenly marriage coming down to the earthly. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Uh, you see, the first thing you've got to understand is that theology is all about Jesus and his church. That The New Testament is a church book. The primary message of the New Testament, if you don't count even the four Gospels and you take them out, the rest of the New Testament is written about local churches or to local churches. That The letters are to teach the church about their Saviour, Jesus Christ. And if they're not teaching them about this, their Saviour, Jesus Christ, they're teaching them about their duties to submit to their heavenly bridegroom. A commitment and a loyalty to Christ is expected. It's commanded in the Bible. And a commitment to one another is also expected of Christians. We are the body. We're to be a united body under our head. We're not to be these free-floating members all over the ether. We don't see bodies where fingers are just flying around somewhere and heads flying somewhere else and call that dismembered junk a person. Um, you see, the New Testament teaches that there's a cohesion, isn't there, of believers in local places. They teach and build one another up. They encourage one another. They serve one another with their gifts and abilities. They're accountable to one another. They, they assemble together. And they choose leaders and submit to them. We might be individual parts, but we're to be united together as a group in submission to Christ, as a body, under one head. Verse 30, for we are members of his body. Now commitment today is an evil word, isn't it? I can't seem to get a commitment out of my adult kids to come to my birthday party. Um, and we want to avoid commitment. We want to make sure that we either get the best deal or we don't miss out on the best party or we don't get hurt if we're too committed to one person. Uh, if we break up, 
in some kind of relationship, we know it's painful. So we need to protect ourselves from pain, don't we? And to protect ourselves from pain, we feel we need to make sure there's no commitment. And so when it comes to church, we've seen splits happen in church. And so what, why should we commit to church? We might feel like doing church today, but later on, well, it might not be that high a priority. So why don't I just keep a distance? Why don't I just maintain an arm's length uh, from the church? Otherwise, I just won't have my freedom and I won't be able to protect my feelings. You know, Jesus does not say he nourishes the body because it's, or the church because it is like his body. He says he nourishes and cherishes the church because it is his body. Not a picture. He's saying it is his body. And he's saying he's 100% committed to his people. He's 100% committed to his church in all her imperfection. In 1998, Barna did a survey. 91% of people believe that religion is very important for their lives. Of the 91%, uh, 63% rejected any idea of absolutes in religion. In other words, they said, religion is important for my life, but I need to be free to choose and test many religions because I'll get something good from everyone. In the same survey, they went to Christians and they asked Christians, are you totally committed to the Christian faith? Do you believe it to be totally true? And that everything else is false. Forty-three percent of Christians said that they believe that Jesus is the only way. In 2007 in Australia they did a survey of people that go to church. Uh, we could come up with 17% only of Australia that would go to church once a month. Now, if a human body was that committed to its own head, you'd have to be asking yourself, has a person had a stroke? Or has someone chopped arms off or legs off? Have they been dismembered? Now, now we all know that uh, being a member of a church doesn't save you. No one ever says that, do they? It, it's not true, is it? Jesus Christ saves his people and he saves the people certainly to himself but he never saves the people to be on their own and alone. We're to be joined to a local church. That's the clear implication of the New Testament letters. When, when you commit, if you've committed yourself to Des Moines uh, Baptist Church, you're not saying this church is going to save you. No one ever says that. But what you are saying is you want to be identified, publicly identified with the Christians in this place. You're saying you don't want to be a selfish lone ranger. You're not saying you want to be committed to yourself. You're saying I want to be committed to these people and I want these people to be committed to me. Saying that a group of people are going to help each other and I want to be part of that group that will help me to submit to Jesus. 
Membership's not going to save me, but membership is going to help me work out my salvation in fear and trembling. Because in this community you'll encourage one another to obey Christ. In this community you should challenge one another to be loyal to Christ. In this community you'll remind one another, do not give up. No matter how painful and testing it gets out there, don't give up. And in this community you'll hold one another accountable. Join a church, whether it's weak or sinful or struggling, you're called to be part of a local church. Through the means of a local church is how Christ is working to nourish, to cherish and to cleanse and prepare you for a wedding banquet. A wedding banquet like you've never seen before. You look at those pictures that I showed the kids talk, the photo book is fraying, the people who got married don't look like the people who got married. You know it's all going to come to an end, don't you? Not like that with the wedding between Jesus and the church. Now the last thing we learn is that we've got to apply this theology into our marriages. I was speaking to David Freeman and David Freeman uh, uh, reminded me again that God had in mind the marriage in heaven first. The marriage between Christ and his church first. And then he worked into creation, human marriages, that we might have constant reminders and constant pictures of what he's doing in the heavenlies. But our mind is not just to be on the heavenlies, is it? It's supposed to be brought into practice. And I'm going to say a few things about marriage because the text demands it. It's not a proper exegesis of things around marriage, but it's just a few pointers. You'd think Paul would be fair, wouldn't you? You'd think he'd say, I'm going to speak to the husbands, and then I'm going to speak to the wives. I'm going to speak to the husbands three times, and I'm going to speak to the wives three times. Or if he's not going to be fair, he's going to be Jewish, he's going to be a Pharisee. I'm going to speak to the husband once, I'm going to speak to the wives ten times. I'm going to speak to the wives twice, well I'm going to speak to the uh, husbands twice, I must speak to the wives a hundred times. He doesn't do that, he's quite the opposite. The statements in this text, the husbands get three times as many commands as the wife gets. The dominant member is given greater responsibility. The subordinate member is not picked on. The theology is about Christ and the church. But, but he says there has to be application of it. And the fairest part is at the end, isn't it? Verses 32 and 33. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love your, his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The main application is to the husband, isn't it? You are the head, so you take the burden of responsibility on your shoulders. Don't pass it off. Don't blame. It's your responsibility. The wife is not to be overburdened with the main responsibility of the quality and of the success of the relationship. I said this in our marriage course, and I got into all sorts of trouble, so I'm in the habit now, I'll say it as well one more time. 
if husband and wife are not talking, the first person to start the talking should be the husband. It should not be the wife. The, the responsibility rests with the husband to find a way to make up. And if the blokes want to hang around me at morning tea, ladies, can you please save me? But, but the question then is, the husband is the head. How, how does he become a saviour to his wife? Well, I think 1 Timothy 4 helps us. 1 Timothy 4, Paul speaking about the last days and, um, and how people will depart from the faith. And he says, in response, you live godly and you trust in God. And we come to verses 9 and 10, where he actually calls uh, Jesus, I believe, the saviour of all men. Verses 9 and 10. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For this end we labour and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the saviour of all men, especially of those who believe. Now what did Paul mean? How is God the saviour of all men? But, well, I think he's speaking about a general saving and a general providing. He's speaking of general providence is what we call it. He's saying God's generous to all men. He's kind to all men. He gives all men rain. He gives all men sun. Uh, he, he gives all mankind all the necessities needed for life and their survival. Otherwise they'd be dead. Without God, every human being would be nothing. But then in a special way he provides for his church. Notice that, especially of those who believe. And in a special way he saves them from sin and he saves them to himself to be his holy bride. And, and I think in this general sense is how husbands are to be saviors of their wives. We're to be willing to provide, we're willing to provide the necessities uh, for everyday life. We're to protect our wives, we're to take a real interest in our wives' welfare. We're to be known for sacrificial love, for deep-seated love for our wives. And in this way, we're to be saviours to our wives. Not capital S, but very small s. Our wives are not the same as all women in this world. They're set apart. They're set apart from all the other women of this world. And they're the ones we've committed to be with, and we've committed ourselves to be like Christ to them. There's no room for selfishness. There's no room for anything other than an opportunity for selfless love. This is what the love of God is like, isn't it? If you went to the fruit of the Spirit and you wanted to work out what is love like in the fruit of the Spirit, you look at Christ, don't you? You look at Christ in Ephesians 5 and this is what fruit of the Spirit love looks like. Husbands, when we love our wives in this way, we prove we're Christians. Some of us, you know, we want to prove we're Christians by how much we know in the Bible. There's nothing wrong with that. Some of us think we'll prove we're Christians by how many things we do and all the good things we do. And there's nothing wrong with that either. And perhaps you might be thinking, I'll prove my Christianity by how much I do in the church. Or how often I'm up the front of the church. And there's a sense in which we are all called to work in the church, isn't it? But here Paul is saying you prove your Christianity by how you love your wife. And may God help us as men. 
And who amongst us can love like this? Well, I, I used a joke of Joel, and I'm going to do that again this morning. Uh, it's an old joke. But, but in class, we were studying Romans, and we'd never met each other. I was in the back of the class with all the class clowns, and there was this little bloke at the front. And we would barely get our translation done and we'd turn up and hope if we sat at the back no one would see us and ask us to translate a verse. But there was a bloke at the front who had his hand up for every translation. He was already completed. He had translated. He knew the answers not only for chapter 3 but he was up to chapter 5 and he was ready to go. And when you want to learn something about Romans and Greek you don't go and ask the class clown. You go and ask the bloke at the front. And so, rather than me giving you an example of me in my marriage, I thought I'd pick someone from the front, a guy called B.B. Warfield. He was born in 1851. He died in 1921. He was a world-renowned theologian. He taught at Princeton Seminary, which is, if you like, position A1. For almost 34 years, he was a lecturer there until he died in 1921. Most of you probably know his books. He was a famous book writer. The inspiration and authority of the Bible is the one that probably is on most people's mind. But what most people don't know is in 1876 he got married. At the age of 25 he married Annie Kincaid and they went on their honeymoon to Germany. Uh, in Germany there was a fierce storm and the storm struck Annie uh, by lightning. She was permanently paralyzed. And then for 39 years of their marriage, uh, Warfield had to care for her. Because of her incredible needs, she had to be turned over, she had to be fed, she had to be provided for every single day of their marriage. He could not leave her for more than two hours. And so he would go and do a lecture and race back and come back and care for her for every single year of those marriage, of that marriage. And then he lived for another five odd years after and died. There was no recovery for Annie. There was no silver lining in the story at all in that sense. The, the whole life was just caring and sacrificing himself for his wife. He wrote theology, but he wrote it when he was sitting with his wife. And his wife, he says in his biography, is um, that, that she was remarkably intelligent. And so they could sit down and read together and proofread and edit. It's an example we need to consider, isn't it? But, but this morning I suspect there are single people here as well. And I should leave something on the table for the single people. You, you might be wondering this morning, how can I find that ideal partner? Well, I think if you look at Ephesians 5 and other passages in the Bible, the Bible's emphasis is not on you finding the ideal partner. The emphasis is how you can prepare to be the ideal partner. Men, you should be getting prepared not to have, but to give. You should be getting into the habit of self-sacrificial giving now and loving. And you should do that in the church. You should do that in Christ's bride. Think of how you can shoulder responsibility in this place here. And don't focus on your freedom. Focus on how you can sacrifice your freedom. 
Imitate a godly man in this fellowship. Find a godly man and ask him, how can I demonstrate self-sacrificing love here? And if you're a single woman, try to find ways to submit in the life of the church. You should not be thinking of getting married if you're not thinking about submission. Try and find a godly woman. Try and go up to a godly wife and ask her, how can you help me imitate your life of submission and service in the life of the church? The word church is used 114 times in the New Testament. 106 of those times it's speaking of a local congregation. Like this, like Dremoyne, like Smithfield. And you find all the commands, all the encouragements, all the exhortations to remind us that God is working through local communities. The Christian life works itself out in a local community. In the membership and in the commitment of the local church, Jesus Christ is building up cleansing and he's purifying his bride and he will purify his bride there is no doubt about that he will cleanse her he will nourish her he will bring her to perfection and there will be a wedding day of wedding days he will not rest until he presents this bride perfect to himself and she'll be in splendor the world will look upon her those who rejected Christ will look upon the church and when they look upon the church in all her splendor they'll say what an amazing saviour what an amazing bridegroom this church has Jesus loves the church and so should we Let's pray. Heavenly Father we thank you again for your word we thank you especially uh, for your son the Lord Jesus Christ we do pray, even as we sing, as we pray, as we read your word, that our hearts would be lifted to worship him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.